Hey, Howard Jacobson here. Welcome to today's Plant Yourself podcast. A quick reminder, this podcast is free for everyone and supported by patrons. So if you would like to find out about becoming a patron of the show and helping us out, helping defray the cost, helping to spread the message, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash gift. Thanks so much and enjoy today's episode. Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Let's begin with a little music to soothe our jangled nerves. So today's episode is about self-care during these very trying times, about mindfulness, about how we can support ourselves, our families, each other, when we might be stuck at home, when we might be worried about lots of things. And I recorded it a couple of weeks ago before the, the protests, before the murder of George Floyd on film, before the outrage that has sparked and led to confrontation blackout Tuesday. You'll notice that this podcast is released on a Wednesday out of deference to not posting anything on social media yesterday to give other voices space to be heard. And I wanted to have a podcast in which I uh, gave a platform to to some of those voices. And I actually you know, was, was texting uh, people who've been on the podcast before, people of color, people who have been um, you know, on the front lines of the movement for racial and social and environmental and species justice for a long time and wasn't able to pull anything together. And so today, I think this conversation is still of value. I think it's still useful for us to be able to take a breath and take care of ourselves in the midst of anger, in the midst of protest. And I don't claim to have any answers about the wider issues. Um, my children are actually teaching me a great deal about being responsible to my words about, you know, having things at stake and not just being what's been called, uh, you know, a performative ally. Uh, and I'm still learning. And so I hope to have something for you next week that will speak to this moment in a, in a useful way. But for right now, um, I can't think of anything more useful than a calm, well-informed medical voice of reason, uh, a person who understands the link between body and mind and spirit, and who is experiencing many of the same things that all, that, that all of us are, st stuck in a, uh, an apartment in New York with um, homeschooled kids, and at the same time, you know, running a practice and taking time graciously to be on the podcast. So I hope this is useful. Before we get to it, um, one quick announcement, which is the coaching group that I started. Uh, we just had our first session about an hour ago, and I think it went really well. People seem to get something out of it. If you're interested, you can sign up at sicktofit.com slash coaching. It's an hour a week. It's a group call, and we cover everything that is preventing you from getting traction on your goals. And the group... Um, format actually helps. You'd think that you get a lot more sort of individual, personalized attention one on one. There's something about the group, hearing other people's struggles, re recognizing them in yourself, and then coming up with solutions for them that you can apply to yourself as well. And just the camaraderie and support for all of us who are doing these unnatural things like eating healthy and trying to exercise 
uh, during pandemic, during times of stress. And the pricing is uh, pay from the heart. And I'm, getting, I'm putting a $15 a month minimum, and you can go as high as you want. The um, suggested retail price is 50 bucks a month. And you can go anywhere between 15 to 50 or more if you'd like to subsidize someone else who can't afford um, the, pro the, um, the service but would like to participate anyway. And there's no long term obligations. You can just go month to month. So for 15 bucks, you can come um, for the rest of you know, the month four times and um, see what you think. All right. Let us talk about mindfulness, about stress reduction, about remaining human and strong during these challenging times. Without further ado, Dr. Boyana Yankovic, welcome back to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. And I'm so excited to talk to you today. I am too, because you have been a voice of calm reason. Um, you know, and <laughs> in, in a world like I'm trying to find information and the people that I'm listening to very often are so sure of themselves and I think are um, in danger of succumbing to confirmation bias, like looking for and then sending out information that proves their points. And you have just been sending out things that every time I read it, I just feel a little better. Oh, uh, I to hear that. So um, before we get into that, you know, you are you are not unaffected by this pandemic. You just kind of tell folks a little bit about like what your life is like right now. Absolutely. Yes. So uh, I'm a physician. Uh, I do internal and integrative medicine. And uh, currently I am doing uh, telemedicine from home, of course. Uh, I um, have two children who are eight and six and a half years old. So we're also homeschooling. Mm -hmm. And we live in New York City, so we're um, we're right in the in the center of it. Um, and uh, you know, I think that as we were kind of chatting a little bit before we started recording, uh, I really have to um, preface this by saying that I am so aware and and so grateful for many of the of the things that we do have right now that my family and I do have right now, and many of the. Um, concerns that uh, that have just been a little bit alleviated um, because we're not currently on the front lines and I'm not currently having to move. I mean, at one point I considered moving out and figuring out how can I volunteer and help and and move out of the house and come back and, and in the end decided to make a, a decision for my children to stay. Um, but I have to say that that there are many, many things that I'm grateful for, but of course for all of us. Um, even people that are not on the front lines, people that are not having to move out of their homes, people that have not lost their loved ones and, and seen tragedy and loss after loss and, and having to, um, you know, treat and, and comfort people that are dying without their family. I mean, um, of course, those individuals are the most exposed and the most um, traumatized by this. Um, but I also recognize that that many of us who are not there on the front lines and certainly many of my patients and colleagues and friends that are not experiencing that day-to-day -day severe trauma are in a way um, uh, traumatized with these little micro traumas of, oh my gosh, what is going on? 
am I going to get this? Is my loved one going to get this? Uh, when do I get to go back to work? When do my kids get to go to school? Uh, what does my financial future look like? Um, and, and, you know, question after question to, you know, to, again, maybe some of the more kind of good problem to have questions such as, uh, you know, is it safe to go on vacation this year kind of thing. Um, so, so, you know, there's a whole spectrum of, of, um, both um, traumas and, and ways in which our existence right now has been compromised and and shifted, uh, and I think it's it's really important to um, to acknowledge and allow for space for all of these, and then do what we can, and we can sort of get into that, but do what we can to help our loved ones in need and our community in need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a couple of things that you said that kind of triggered uh, responses. And me, one is I remember this book, I'm blanking a little bit on the title, but I think it was basically like How to Make Yourself Miserable by Dan Greenberg. (laughs) And it was a, you know, sort of a comedy spoof book. And like the first thing, the thing I remember from the book is the way, the best way to make yourself miserable is to compare yourself to others. Mm, Right. And boy, I'm seeing so much of that. And I'm certainly feeling it in myself. Like, who am I to be depressed right now when there's people who are food insecure? And are hungry when there's people who are dying, right? Yes. When and and so that I want to minimize my own pain, and mm-hmm. and like you know it, it shouldn't matter. I should just you know buck up and be strong and go do my thing and not show any vulnerability. And and of course the the result of that is not that I eliminate those feelings. I just take them out on people because I'm unaware of them. So I'm you know I'm sort of making the world a worse place. By not acknowledging, you know what, I like, like, honestly, I have felt I've been depressed for the last three weeks. I'm just I'm starting to come out of it through the acknowledgement. But if you look at like, do I have anything to be depressed about compared to most people? Like, objectively, some part of me says no. And yet, so for you to say like, yeah, I have all these blessings and I'm still aware Mm -hmm. of my own and other people's pain without having to rank it. Or like, you know, does this is this an ace over your queen? Right. And and honestly, I think it's so important to I, I totally hear you. And uh, and I struggle with this as well so much. Uh, and, and I think that two words that come up um, for me when we talk about that are guilt and shame. Right. Mm. Guilt that sort of survival guilt and that, well, it could be so much worse. You know, I could be living with a loved one who has cancer and having to figure out how to move out of the apartment so I don't, uh, you know, spread this to them or, or you know, um, or, or I'm in the front lines or I don't have food security or, as you mentioned, so many things that are I can't pay rent, you know, so many things that are that are much, much worse than, again, um, for many individuals, the the sort of drastic shift in lifestyle, but no impending, uh, you know, threat to their health, uh, to to their their shelter, to their food, and so on. And so, I think that um, it's probably, and again, I'm not a psychiatrist or a therapist, but but I would say that it's probably normal to feel those feelings of guilt and shame that that many of us feel that are like, well, I could be doing more and I should be doing this and that, and I should be getting PPE for everyone. And I should try to figure out. And, 
And, and I think that, that that's valid. And that's probably part of our protective mechanism to kind of try to get us into that fight or flight and get us to act and maybe get us to do something that has meaning and value and purpose for us and for our loved ones. Maybe that's what it is. Um, and so while I think it's okay to acknowledge that and to and to accept it, right? Because trying to push away or suppress any emotion we know is not effective. So while it's okay to acknowledge it, to also not let it sort of take over, right? And and I think that it's that it's perfectly, um, uh, uh, you know, natural and uh, and many people are experiencing this of of falling into a depression or falling into an anxious state or having a terrible insomnia because all of a sudden we're not feeling safe, whether that sense of safety is, um, you know, real or not real. It's real to us. You know, we're not feeling well or we're not feeling safe. And so acknowledging it, but also being able to sort of question it and get curious about it and say, well, is that really true? You know, and and is there something that I can give and contribute um, and, and provide meaning to? And is there a, a sense of comfort that I can create for myself that I can actually feel good about? And is that really wrong? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the other thing that really struck me is was your decision to stay with your family and to provide telemedicine as opposed to like the call to war. Right. I'm sure there's some part of your brain that says like, this is my like, this is what I trained for. This is what I stayed up for all these nights to go to the front lines. And I think, you know, for some you mentioned, I love I wrote these words down, meaning, value and purpose that mm -hmm. if you if we're driven by meaning, value and purpose, you will make a certain decision. Somebody else like, you know, Rob Ostfeld, who was working at Montefiore, will make a different decision. But they're both based on your meaning, value and purpose of your life, as opposed to what I see, especially in a lot of doctors, is a savior complex, mm -hmm. like almost like. I have to sacrifice my family. I have to sacrifice my happiness. I have to sacrifice my own health because I'm only worth something if I'm saving the world. And I hear you mm -hmm. coming from a much more mature and healthy place and saying that me being a mom, me being a wife can coexist with me helping people. And in fact, from the place that I'm at, and, and I will testify to the value your communications and your interviews have given me during this time, like just because you're not firing howitzers at the enemy doesn't mean you're not valuably contributing to to our society. Well, thank you for that. It's uh, it definitely and, and to go back to what you said, I 100% felt it was a calling. I mean, it was so strong. I decided I put my name down. I volunteered. I, you know, I went ahead and I'm like, I've got to do this. Like, this is my calling. This is what I exactly what you said. This is what I trained for. Uh, and now, like, now is the time. They need me. I need to help. Uh, and then in talking to my husband and explaining to my daughter, actually, one night, I said that this was my intention and this is how. So I'm waiting to hear from the hospital and and so on. And and I will say, and I know that, you know, uh, if if any parents who are healthcare workers or essential workers um, are listening to this, uh, uh, you know, I think that it's it, we all know it's such a difficult decision. And I've so and I've read so many Facebook posts from moms and dads that are going in and not seeing their kids for very long periods of time. And it's just so heartbreaking to me. 
Um, and so my daughter who suffered from anxiety and, and now is actually doing much, much better. Um, but you know, just gave me this huge hug and she was like, mommy, you can't leave. You can't leave us. Please don't leave us. And, and then just covering some of the practical issues with my husband, I, I've, made the difficult and I felt really really horrible about the decision for a long period of time I mean I felt like I'm a total um you know I'm a total failure I should be out there doing this and um and 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 saving lives in in this way now that it matters but I think over time I realized okay really my family needs me right now and and there are many amazing amazing doctors that have made the decision to go there I'm going to work on doing the best that I can in this circumstance where I felt that I'm very much needed to my kids right now and my husband. And so, but it was really tough. And then of course, doing everything I possibly can from my home office. Mm -hmm. Right. So how do you feel now about that decision as you, as you look back? You know, it's hard to say. I wonder, I, I really wonder what it would have been like. And, um, I think that part of me will always wonder mm. and um, but I think it's also important to not necessarily get stuck on should have, could have, you know, like don't should all over yourself. Right. But, to you know, think about, OK, well, if and when the next wave comes, are there certain things we can do to prepare so that I can go out there? Are, are there other things or other ways in which I can continue to serve my patients? Um you know, in this context of of still being, you know, a mom to to my kids on a day to day basis, um, perhaps, you know, and so I think that that just sort of thinking about um, remaining flexible and thinking about uh, being open to to many different ways and possibilities of contribution down the road. Mm. Uh huh. Yeah, and it, and it sounds like, you know, we, you and I have talked a lot about mindfulness and about being in the moment. And it feels like you're holding the future pretty lightly. Like, yeah, these are possibilities, but I'm not playing chess with it. Right, right. Um, you know, I uh, heard and we can we can we can dive in a little bit about, uh, you know, what mindfulness is and, and how how one might want to use it as a tool, um, because it's really a. Uh, a mind-body modality that has been so thoroughly researched, and there are many, many high-quality studies on it, um, on mindfulness-based stress reduction specifically, when it comes to improving our mental health and improving symptoms of anxiety and depression and coping, um, to actually even mindful eating, um, to help with binge eating behaviors, um, to also helping with some chronic um, disease symptoms such as chronic pain um, or uh, to help people suffering from other chronic diseases alleviate their symptoms and improve their quality of life. Um, so what's interesting about mindfulness and also uh, for anybody listening and, and Howard, I'm happy to, to share with you the link. I uh, just listened to an incredible um, interview with John Kabat-Zinn uh, that is uh, directed, the one from this year was, direct, was directed towards uh, healthcare workers and the one from last year uh, was um, um, also directed towards healthcare workers, but a little bit broader because it was pre-COVID-19. Mm -hmm. um, but it was part of an online uh, summit that is free. And and I just was, uh, every time I listen to John Kabat-Zinn or, or somebody 
um, who is in this uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction space and so well-versed and so well-educated and science-based, but also open to um, the, the um, what comes out of awareness and what comes out of the the, the non-physical, the non-measurable maybe. Um, I, I'm just so inspired and I feel like it sort of takes me that extra step. Um, so I don't know, perhaps what I said was was inspired by something that I heard by, uh, you know, from John Kabat-Zinn and, uh, and sort of that my mind sort of uh, di- had a chance to digest. Um, but, you know, when, when we think about mindfulness and and what I really love about it is that mindfulness doesn't necessarily mean, okay, I'm going to meditate for 20 minutes today. And so I'm mindful. And now I'm a mindfulness guru because I've been meditating for 15 years every single day and I'm super mindful and I'm just like so mindful and I'm great at it. And no, it's the opposite of that. Right. Or, um, you know, it's, it's certainly not, okay, I'm meditating every day and doing these practices and I'm Zen no matter what and nothing. No, not that either. Um, and not not some sort of miracle or pill or switch or anything like that. Um, and and I love John Kabat-Zinn's definition because he of course founded the mindfulness based stress reduction program in 1979. Um, and for anyone who who doesn't know uh, who John Kabat-Zinn is, he's actually a PhD in molecular biology from MIT, um, who has been a, a practitioner of um, Buddhism and mindfulness for for many years. And he he created mindfulness based stress reduction as a framework. Yeah. Um, and b- and b- before you go on, I just I just feel compelled to share one of my great shame moments of my life, which is re- related to John Kabat-Zinn. Yeah. So yes. he wrote like he, there was a time where I was really struggling as a parent. I think mm-hmm. my kids were maybe like four and one. Mm-hmm. And, and I got his book called Everyday Blessings, The Inner Work of Mindful Parenting. And I'm on the bed reading it. And my daughter comes in and wants to say, tell me something. And I told her, like, get out of the room. I'm busy. Can't you see I'm busy? And like <laughs> that, like this, if, if you had like a low lights reel of my life, like that would be on it. Like Me like yeah, basically yeah. swatting her away with John Kabat-Zinn's book on mindful parenting. Right. And and you know what? I think that's so that's so true. I mean, I've done that so many times, you know, like I'm, I'm busy right now. I'm, I'm, you know, like whether it's a reading a paper on mindful, mindfulness or preparing a talk on mindfulness, it's like a, mommy's not available right now. I'm doing this, you know, and and just like okay, I'm not quite embodying this <laughs> right now. Um, but but you know what I what I really uh, like about his definition and his um, framework is that it, it really is this this profound awareness of of where we are, what our present moment is right now, and and of what's going on internally as well as what's going on externally. And and the way that that it's defined is that it's it's this awareness, um, this intentional awareness in this in the present moment without judgment. Um, and so the, the interesting thing about judgment, of course, is that we all judge all the time. And that is our, again, survival mechanism. We have to decide Okay, is this uh, um, you know plant that I'm going to eat? Does it taste good? Is it healthy, or does it have poisons or toxins? Or does this person that I'm talking to right now does it look like they're smiling and they have good intentions and they're kind, or do they look like they're about to you know hit me or something? Right. So we have to judge. That is that that is part of our our human um, uh, uh, toolbox uh, evolution that was developed evolutionarily. But at the same time, 
when we think about being mindful, we're really thinking about creating some space. And that's the space between an action and our reaction to that or a stimulus and our reaction to that stimulus. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so what I what I love about the um, the, the practice of mindfulness is that really you can practice like we we are practicing it right now if we are connecting to ourselves, to our conversations, to each other, um, to people that may be listening, to to the world today, to how just physically how we feel right now. Uh, that is part of being mindful. Um, and so it, it, it's really something that that we can practice 24-7. But at the same time, we're also human. So, And being human um, is not mutually exclusive from being mindful. No. It's well, that- for, yeah. for me, the, the practice of mindfulness is not the being mindful, but becoming mindful. So without without the human mindlessness, without the... You know, I love how you talk about like, you know, when we're not mindful, there's no space between stimulus and reaction. And mm-hmm. and we're all conditioned and we're all conditioned to, you know, basically respond to whatever's happening in the moment to change our state to be more pleasant. Right. Right. So like candy is a real like cookies are a really quick, effective way to change my state in this moment. And as long as long as I don't realize it, I will keep doing all that. So the you know, so the idea of coming into mindfulness is to recognizing, oh, here I am caught with my third cookie. Like that's a really powerful, mindful moment, as opposed to saying that I'm going to try for this 24 seven. That's that's a really good point. And it really is about moment to moment. And and what's also really interesting. And and I just heard again, John Kabat-Zinn say this in this recent interview is that somebody asked him, you know, how do I how do I get there? And he's like, but there's nowhere to get. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was so simple yet so profound mm-hmm. because there's nowhere like there's there's nowhere to get really. It's it's really that moment to moment awareness and that moment to moment shift and that recognition of like you said um, with your daughter. Uh, recognition of like, oh, I just said that. Okay, well, I'll, you know, I'll do better next time. I'm aware of that. Like, I'm aware that I just did that as opposed to total lack of awareness and going back to your book, right? So, so I mean, I I have many, many of these moments too of like, I remember I was in the car with my kids one time and they also, and I think like those ages too are so hard, like one and four. And my kids also were both toddlers and we were driving, and this is when we lived in California, so we had a car, and we were driving, and uh, and they were in the back of the car, and just were so, and I was like, guys, just breathe, just breathe, and you know, <laughs> again, I was like, so, um, they were like fighting in the back, I was driving, I can't, I mean, there's nothing I can do, mm-hmm. and, and I'm sort of trying to get us all to like take deep breaths, and meanwhile, my breathing is shallow and irregular, and again, I'm yelling. Uh, so, so I think that recognizing that and even having a sense of humor about it, because again, it's part of the human condition. And I think that's what I, that's what really appeals to me about the mindfulness-based stress reduction framework is that, that realizing that there's nowhere to like accepting, truly accepting ourselves as who we are and being aware of these different, um, 
components of ourselves and our reactions and our triggers and and the and the moment to moment presence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and um, you know, like I feel like I have been taught mindfulness in in times in a way that actually made it seem very hard and esoteric and unnatural. Like, and I'm thinking specifically about mindful eating. Like, you know, okay, I'm going to like, I'll go to some spiritual day and they'll have lunch and I'll be like, well, I'm going to eat mindfully today. And then I'm like picking up the thing and like chewing 54 times. And and it feels totally like performative, like I'm just doing a show, whereas true mindfulness is much simpler and more organic than than that. It's you know, it's almost it's like it's almost like a bad term, like it's not your mind, it's your body. Like, am, am I in my body? Because my body can only be present. My mind can be a million years ahead or two years behind. But can I can I be in my body? Absolutely. And I love that you actually made that point about the word mindfulness, because my understanding is that in many other languages, mindfulness is actually uh, heartfulness. If you were to literally translate it, it's actually heartfulness. Hmm. Uh, again, we know profound connection between the heart and the brain, both physically, of course, but also sort of metaphorically, right? And and um, and and so, if we just act with our mind, right? That's our rational brain. That's our kind of calculated brain, or maybe emotional brain. But if we act from the heart, it's an instinct. It is that true present and uh, presence. And so. Um, so I completely agree with you. I think that that in a way, it's it's so much more organic and and simpler than what we may make it out to be. And I think that there are a lot of. I really liked something that you uh, said when we did the webinar together um, a few weeks back, uh, which was about you know the society making it so hard for us to make you know healthy food choices and to be healthy. Well, it's the same thing uh, with mindfulness, I think, that um, our, the way that we've designed our lives today makes it so difficult to to stop and have that gap between a stimulus and a reaction to really be mindful. And I agree with you. You know, I think that, that some of the mindful exercises when it comes to eating, uh, they absolutely feel artificial, uh, but I think they're there to illustrate um one end of the spectrum where we're really just all consumed in this one act of eating a raisin, like the raisin exercise is really well known in the mindfulness circles. Right. And so, um, and I'll never forget when I first did my raisin exercise because I didn't actually like raisins. (laughs) I was going to get out of it. And then I think it was either in the mindfulness based stress reduction handbook or maybe John Kabat-Zinn's uh, book, Full Catastrophe Living. Um, in one or the other, they had something about, you know, if, you, if you're if you thinking about not doing the raisin exercise or if you don't like raisins, just, you know, think again. Just, just do it anyway and see how you feel. And I was like, okay, fine, I'll do it. And, um, and, and I'll never forget how in this moment of very much exaggerated chewing and smelling and looking at the raisin and really taking my time um, – I mean, my salivary glands, the the explosion of that raisin's juiciness and um, 
and like, I mean, I'm salivating now as I'm talking about it, you know, the, the juiciness and the sweetness and, um, is just something I will not forget. So it's interesting. Like, why am mm-hmm. I still remembering this now? That was years ago, uh, when I don't even like raisins. So I think it's, it's to illustrate that. And then you sort of, you know, go back to eating more naturally, but in a way that engages these senses, which again is so hard nowadays because most of us, again, myself included many times, um, probably less so during COVID because I work from home. So I can now just go and eat in our, uh, in our kitchen or dining room and, and it's fine. But at work, I oftentimes will be eating lunch and, and doing work. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it is, it is something that we sort of have to, again, take the time to do it. Like, there are no shortcuts. Right. And when, you know, so when I work with people on mindfulness and eating, um, I, I generally take two taxes. And I love your description of like the raisin, like you are getting real pleasure out of mm-hmm. this food that you didn't like because yeah. you were paying such exquisite attention to it. And I think that like for a lot of us, we talk like we all know about the nutrients in food, right? The right. vitamins, the minerals, the phytonutrients, antioxidants, all that stuff. But it feels to me like one of the key nutrients in food is pleasure. Mm-hmm. And so when we're if I'm doing work, which I sometimes do when I'm eating, I'm on the phone or listening or talking to someone else or, you know, even just sort of like eating mm-hmm. on a video call and just like muting myself when I'm chewing, like mm-hmm. I'm not paying attention. So there's none of the like vitamin pleasure getting in. And so, you know, just like we have a an amount of calories that we want to get each day, there's a threshold. There's an amount of nutrients that we want to get. There's, there's a weight and a volume of food and we don't achieve it. We're driven to overeat. I think that if we don't get enough pleasure, we're driven to overeat uh, in the same way. So so that when, you know, maybe four raisins would be enough for you, right? right. But, but if you're eating mindlessly, I'm sure an entire box of Oreos isn't enough for most people, right? We eat, we eat until we're sick. Absolutely. And I have, and you know that I have a weakness for chocolate-covered almonds. and mm. And that is absolutely, you know, uh, if if I compare really eating mindfully and taking my time and the richness of that flavor of that one reason, if you truly pay attention to it, it's so much greater than a chocolate covered almond that but when I grab it, I'm probably also doing something else. And um, and then it's just like, OK, and it, it just sort of becomes this mechanical thing where I agree with you. If your attention is not on that then you don't derive as much pleasure, even though, of course, the 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 um, uh, the, the pleasure centers in the brain after getting so much sugar are uh, very much stimulated for a while. And we know that it's, you know, more addictive than cocaine or heroin. Um, so it's it's there. It gets fired up and hence the addiction to sugar. Um, but I agree with you. I think it's quite possible that if if you were to focus on just that and really savor it, then a smaller portion would likely suffice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and the other thing that people are not mindful about is how full they are. So very often people will come to me and the problem is like, oh, I'm eating the right food, but I'm eating too much. Well, so how do you know you're eating too much? Well, you know, I just feel bad. I feel bad afterwards. And, and so so but they like I said, like, how full are you right now? Like if we had a scale of one to ten. Like, I don't know. Right. So so until you look, you don't know until you pay attention to the salivary process around a raisin. You don't know. 
And so for a lot of us, like during the pandemic, I see a lot of people just stuffing themselves to feel better until they feel worse. And so, you know, having the simple awareness of like on a scale of one to 10, am I, if one is ravenous and 10 is as disgustingly full as I've ever felt, where am I right now? And what would trigger me to stop? Like, where is an optimal fullness place? Is it, you know, maybe it's a six or a seven. And when, when people apply that to their eating, and it doesn't have to be like a full on meditation, but simply checking in every 10 forkfuls, you know, it's like someone's pumping gas and they never, you know, the, the gas is like pouring out of the of the the gas tank and they're still fueling it because they're not paying attention. Absolutely. I, I really agree with you. And I think that um, the other thing that's interesting is is oftentimes I find that if I and again, with COVID-19, it's a little bit different. But if I find that I have something like somewhere to go right after that meal, I generally know that, okay, well, if I'm digesting, but then I also have to walk over somewhere or I have to um, get ready and and my body generally knows that, okay, well, if I'm going to be digesting, I can't really overload my digestive system while I'm being active. And, you know, not that I'm going to go exercise right after a meal, but if I'm walking over somewhere, if I'm um, getting ready for something, it requires a little bit of uh, physical activity to do that. Automatically, I find that I'm not going to eat as much because I know I have some sort of a light to moderate activity coming up. Or if I'm cleaning up the kitchen right after, I know that it doesn't feel really good cleaning up the kitchen with a very, very full stomach. It's like you want to not be a 10 out of 10. You want to maybe, I feel that I generally like to be maybe a six. Mm -hmm. uh, or a seven at most, if I'm going to be, you know, loading the dishwasher, washing stuff, getting all of that stuff done. And so even just paying attention to what are you scheduling after your meal? And, mm -hmm. and do you have enough of a capacity to allow the digestive process to go on and um, optimally? Uh, and, and are you feeling too full for the activity that you're about to do? But if your activity is being on the computer or, you know, watching TV, then, you know, it's, it's easier to be fuller um, when you're not moving. Yeah. And, and there's a little bit of a paradox seemingly there because you're talking about mindfulness, but you're also talking about future planning. But, mm -hmm. the, but the, I think that the resolution is when you're mindful sitting in front of the TV with an overly full stomach or trying to clean the kitchen with an overly full stomach, when you are bring your attention to that and you feel how yucky it is, like as Judd Brewer says, um, it's the curiosity of those moments that are much better teachers than somebody's lecture. Right. Right. Yeah. And oftentimes, I mean, uh, it's, it's interesting because sometimes I think, and I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are about this. I think it's sometimes hard to be curious about those moments because they're uncomfortable. And so oftentimes we'll try to either say, well, you know, I'll be better tomorrow. I'm not going to, you know, just really pay attention to this. I'll be better tomorrow. Uh, or or there's, again, associated guilt or shame um, or or just sort of suppressing whatever the emotion is related to that that discomfort um and and then that really is a lost opportunity to get curious mm -hmm. yeah well you know it's very hard to be self-compassionate 
when you're beating yourself up. Like a lot of people, you know, there's all these memes on Instagram about self-love, love yourself. When I am in a place of self-loathing, I just want to punch someone who tells me to love myself. Like it's, it's, it's infuriating. But if someone then says, what does it feel like to be, so, to be self-loathing right now? Then they're asking a question that elicits curiosity. Huh? Like I, that can coexist. And curiosity is a very positive emotional state. So it's, it's the one that can replace the, the negative, the, the loathing, the guilt, the shame that you're feeling in that moment, along with the profound discomfort. And it, you know, and it feels better than the self-loathing. And so and it, and it can lead to compassion. So I, I think that, you know, for me, curiosity, which is kind of another word for mindfulness, like, you know, OK, I'm curious about me as opposed to curious about, you know, who did it on the on the police procedural. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And and um, I, I think you're so right. I think you're so right about that. And, and it's uh, I think what curiosity does, it, it, it just opens up that window of possibility or that door of possibility. Um, it allows us to question those beliefs and thoughts that maybe we've had revolving in our minds for a very long time. And now they're the norm. Mm. And we know neurons that fire together, wire together. So this is our default mode. And let's say if we take, you know, self-loathing and if we take, you know, beating ourselves up about something, that's our default pattern. Now, if we've practiced it enough, that's the path of least resistance. And so it's very, very hard to interrupt that loop of like, well, I never, I never do this thing well, and I'll never, or I'll never be fill in the blank or, um, you know, and, uh, or I'm always something horrible. And, and so that curiosity, uh, gives the opportunity to break that pattern and to say, well, is that really true? Um, and at times we might feel that, yeah, this is this is true for me right now. And then we can follow up with the question of, well, have have there been any examples in 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 my life where this hasn't been true? And then you start that slow shift, which, again, the idea is not to be the sort of always positive thinking and only positive things, but to expand our awareness to times in our lives maybe where we've been able to prove to ourselves that actually this false belief, this very negative belief is not true. Mm-hmm. Um, and and again, that just cracks that door a little bit more open. Yeah. And then the possibilities arise. Yeah. And so I want to segue from there into your professional advocacy right now, because to me that it is also based on curiosity and a yes and attitude as opposed to a no but, right? Like, okay, this is true, and what else is true? And what else could be true? And you're presenting um, webinars, interviews, articles, resources that are very curiosity-driven. And I can tell they're curiosity-driven because they are not strident, and you're not trying to convince anybody that you're right, you have the answers, and other people are idiots, which, which unfortunately is a lot of the energy of, of a lot of discourse. So, you, you know, sort of share like when you like you really ramped up your sharing since you've been home since the pandemic. What what was your, what is your what are your goals 
in mm-hmm. in talking to your patients and talking to students to followers on social media and to the world like what 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 messages did you want to get out even as we did as there's so much we don't know right yeah so i would say you know to to kind of uh take a step back a little bit just having been you know trained in the conventional medical setting and having done research. I did cancer research. I have a master's degree that I got prior to medical school and in cancer research. I've always been data driven. Like that is just part of my, and my undergrad was in biophysics. And so I have this, this huge interest in, um, again, data and statistics, numbers, how does this all connect? Um, and, and then of course, being of a scientific mind, I also know that, um, we can generate hypotheses, and then those hypotheses are either supported, not proven, supported by evidence, or um, they're not supported by evidence, they're rejected. Uh, and then when we when we look at hypotheses that are, let's say, supported by evidence, well, how strong is the evidence? How big was the, if it's a clinical trial, how many patients were in this trial? What was the design of the trial? What is the quality of the trial and so on? Was, were there any biases on the parts of authors? And again, not to say that I'm, I'm certainly not an academic. I'm certainly, you know, I'm not a researcher now and, and that's not part of my my current path. But but having that so ingrained in me and, and really just being a core of, of who I am and, and how I think, um, this is how I approach um, um, anything that I read. Uh, whether it's from a medical journal um, or it's, you know, another source that's maybe citing some research or, or whatnot. Um, and of course, now the the range of research that we're getting, there's so much of it related to COVID-19, but the range of it is quite broad. There are a lot of non-peer-reviewed publications that are um, that are being made available and, um, and, and a lot of... Um, studies that have that are being criticized and and so on. So my objective really with all of that is to present information as I understand it objectively uh, and and in a way that's easily understandable but also practical and actionable when when indicated. Um, but also to uh, to keep in mind and to really keep it clear that I certainly do not know it all. And I'm very much aware of my own limitations, of our limitations of just scientific research in general. Um, I'm aware of the fact that there are things we don't know we don't know. Um, And so I think that it's so important. Yes, we like to be definitive and conclusive. And, uh, you know, of course, there are all these different motives for, for those things, right? But 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 one of the very simple, I think, human motives is that we like certainty. We like to say, okay, one plus one is two, and that is it. End of the you know end of the thing. That's it. But but also we have to recognize that there is so much uncertainty. There's so much that we don't understand, not just in medicine, but in all aspects of science, um, uh, and and all of the really disciplines. Uh, and so so my goal is really to share what we know and provide a framework for making the most informed decisions given what we have. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then for people who read that 
to perhaps take it to their doctor. Of course, I none of the information that I share with individuals who are not my patients is medical advice. I still recommend that, of course, people discuss any changes they're going to make, any decisions they're making uh, regarding their health. They must discuss them with their healthcare professional. But to be armed with the information and say, hey, doctor, what do you think about this? I just read this. Um, or, or to... Um, uh, you know, really used to guide their lifestyle. You know, when we talk about some of the lifestyle recommendations and 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 writings that I um, uh, that I that I provide and that I put out there, um, and then and then some of the things that I do are really just because uh, I'm very I'm I'm a curious individual, and that's part of partly the reason why I went into medical school and did research, and uh, and so I'm curious to hear from other professionals and other specialists and. Um, and I'm often connecting with my colleagues over the phone and a lot of the stuff, obviously, I, I'm not able to capture as as a webinar, but I'm just curious to hear what other people think, what are other people working on. And and I think it's so important, again, back to the curiosity to maintain that and to really be humble, no matter who we are, to be humble about our current understanding and our current ability to provide guidance regarding a specific issue. Yeah. So, I mean, the phrase that I wrote down from what you just said was like, what we don't know that we don't know, right? Mm -hmm. Like that feels so profound. Like there's things we know that are Mm -hmm. right. There's things we know that will turn out to be wrong. There's things we know we don't know, but there's this like, those are all sort of definable. Like we have a sense of how big they are, but the things we don't know we don't know um, like if you look historically at debates and, and you know whether in science or politics or society, it's it's those things that end up we end up looking at and saying like that's what they missed, that's what they got wrong. So how how do you operationalize the fact that there's things you don't know you don't know when you're trying to come to an understanding and trying to be helpful to others? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that it can be very overwhelming, but only if we choose it to be overwhelming, right? So I think that um, to really answer it simply, knowing that what I'm, what I'm doing right now is working towards performing to the best of my ability, given the current knowledge that we have. Um, And so I think that we all as long as we know we're doing the best we can and really striving towards that and 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 self-correcting when when it's maybe not the best we can, that's all we can do. And then the unknown unknowns will maybe some of them will reveal themselves over the course of our lifetimes. Maybe they won't. But again, it, I think it comes back to the fact that we can only control the things that we can control. And then there's the rest of it that we just can't control. And the rest of it that we can't control, we acknowledge it, we recognize it, but we also don't necessarily dwell on it if with absolute certainty we know that there's nothing we can do to control it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's, almost, it's almost like the um, mindfulness bec- comes back in when we're looking for narratives to 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 wrap everything up neatly, like one of the one of the things I try to do, and I'm not that good at it, honestly. But what I try to do is before I start researching something or reading about something, I ask myself, what do I want to be true? 
mm-hmm. right? So if, if someone will post something about nutrition, here's a new study showing that keto helps with weight, is healthy and helps with weight loss. Before I start reading it, I check in. It's like, okay, I want this to be wrong. Mm-hmm. So I know I'm going to go in there looking for, well, how big was the study and who funded it? And, and my bias is going to be to tear it down, as opposed to I see a study about isocaloric diets and the people who ate plant-based lost more weight and had better lipid regulation. I'm like, yeah, yeah. that one's good. Let me look and see you know, how I can um, promote this as brilliant. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the problem is like when, when we don't have that understanding, we just fall into confirmation bias. And we, mm-hmm. we then are then our egos are involved in protecting what we thought yesterday. And, and I see you doing a spectacular job of avoiding that trap in, in, in sharing things that feel like they are coming not from an ego place of I have to defend my uh, what I told you yesterday. Right, right. Yeah. And I think that really just comes back from that scientific um, background. But I agree with you. I think that even as as scientists, we oftentimes can get uh, very much, you know, we want a certain result. I mean, I know that when I was doing my master's research, I was really, really hoping for a certain result. And and some of those outcomes ended up being statistically significant and others didn't. And and so I, and, and it's funny that you said that actually, I'm, I'm the same way. I definitely have a, you know, certain things that I'm like, I, I really I really want this to be the outcome of the study. I have to really, you know, check in with myself um, as to how I'm I'm going to look at it as as objectively as possible. Um, uh, and again, I think that, and we know, and I mean, I, I think you you also um, alluded to an example that is that is just so uh, confusing for uh, most of us physicians and scientists and dietitians and. Um, you know, health coaches, how to make sense of the literature on nutrition, because there are seemingly studies that have very different conclusions. So how do we reconcile that? How do we make sense of it? And I don't, I don't have a simple answer to that. But I know what, um, what I believe in. And, um, but at the same time, I'm, I don't necessarily discredit the other areas, nor, nor do I feel like, okay, I'm, I'm just in this camp here, but I'm not, you know, and, and, and again, I think we've, we've talked about this before too. And, and, and one of the things in my work with my patients, you know, I don't, um, I certainly don't, uh, um, impose, um, strict, um, what's the word, um, dietary measures on my patients and say, well, if you don't do this, then forget it. Mm. How, you know, I meet them where they are, but do I provide guidance in the areas where we know 99% of the research agrees on? Yes, I do. And, and the simple facts that we know, like just the tiny number of our United States adult population that's consuming enough fruits and vegetables. Yes, we know that. Do we know that? And, and you know, and Michael Greger, actually, I was just recently reviewing uh, some of his posts, who does uh, nutritionfacts.org. Um, Dr. Michael Greger, uh, he was writing about individuals who um, don't consume any fruits and vegetables over a period of time 
um, tend to have uh, worse health outcomes uh, compared to once they, you know, start eating fruits and vegetables again, they do better. And then comparing the percentage of people that get upper respiratory infections or that are hospitalized for the flu, um, comparing those groups that don't eat um, enough plants and people that do eat enough plants. Well, guess what? If you eat more plants, you're, you have a lower risk of getting hospitalized um, with the flu, according to the study, or you have a lower risk of upper respiratory symptoms, which again, makes sense because we know about the benefits of vitamins, phytonutrients, and so on. So I think that um, I do my best not to pick and choose, but I also look for the, what are the commonalities? Like, what can I really draw from where I can tell my patients? Uh, and then of course, depending on each individual specific condition and um, uh, and predisposition and symptoms and so on, say, okay, well this, let, let's start here. This is a reasonable framework for you. And then we'll, we'll work from there. Great. So I'd like to, and just by having you share, like, what do you know about COVID-19 that that matters to ordinary people? Like what? There's so much confusion out there. Um, I hope that the course of this conversation has given people confidence that you don't have an axe to grind. You're not you didn't like buy the T-shirt and now you're pirating everything the team says. Um so what what should be just practically what should people know what should they be doing you know masks distancing food um like anything you can think of that you have been sharing um that that helps people be safe and sane and happy Sure absolutely so in terms of and and you know as as we all know there there's still so many unknowns and so many things about um SARS-CoV-2 that causes uh, COVID-19 illness um, that, that is going to be discovered. And so many surprises along the way that we've learned from our healthcare workers on the front lines, from, from how these patients are best managed and supported in the ICU and how that's different from many of the other respiratory illnesses and so on. Um, so, so still a lot of questions, which I know, of course, nobody likes to hear. Um, but, and, and then of course, there was confusing information. Initially, we were told, do not wear masks. Then we were told, do wear masks. And um, and so, you know, I think that as, as our country starts to open up, um, I think it's still important to um, continue to practice the measures that, um, that people can, that they're able to, um, to, to really, as much as possible, um, reduce their risk of uh, getting the virus or transmitting it. And so um, wearing masks is really thought to be one of the ways in which we can reduce the risk of spread. And I shared, uh, I think it was earlier this week, um, uh, an article that was written by Dr. Aaron Bromage from Dartmouth, who is, uh, is uh, an, an immunologist and a biologist who wrote about um uh, the the different case studies of how um, how COVID nineteen or how SARS CoV two spread, um, and uh, and what was interesting is that the most of the cases of spread um, occurred uh, indoors, right? So thankfully we're coming into warmer months, and so we'll be able to spend more time outdoors. And thankfully, it doesn't seem that the risk of transmission outdoors is is nearly as high as the risk of transmission indoors, but we still need to um, need to be cautious. Um, 
in terms of, I get a lot of questions about testing, and this is something that I wrote about recently as well. Uh, you know, I think we have to be really careful about testing. Uh, the trend here in New York City has been that a lot of people are, you know, getting the antibody testing. So we know, of course, there's the molecular testing, the PCR testing um, that one can get from initially the gold standard was the nasopharyngeal swab, which is all the way back. Um, now there are actually some companies and, and labs that are doing the um, anterior nasal swab and also a salivary um, uh, sample from, from saliva uh, to actually look for um, the presence of the virus. Um, and that really just says that, okay, you currently have it. Whether you're symptomatic or not symptomatic, it means, okay, you currently have it and you could currently transmit it to somebody else. Now, what's interesting is that then we have the antibody testing, which tells us, have we been exposed in the past? Um, the problem, however, with antibody testing is that it's not 100% accurate. It's not 100% sensitive and specific. Um, and, and statistically, what happens is when we have a disease that's, that has such a low prevalence, and remember right now we're at about 1.5 million in all of US. Um, the United States has 327 million people. So that's about 0.4% of the population currently has it. However, because of the lag in testing and many people not getting tested, some estimates are saying up to 5% of the population has it. So um, if we assume that only 0.4% of the population has it, um, then when we look at the, the sensitivity and specificity of the current tests that are available, um, when you get and specifically the specificity, actually, when you get a positive test result for the antibody telling you, yes, you've, you've been exposed, you have the antibodies, you may have some degree of immunity. Again, we still don't know mm -hmm. to what degree we're immune for how long and so on. Um, we may get falsely reassured because, and, and there's a great calculator actually where anybody out there who's like a, a math or, or a statistics uh, nerd, I'm, I'm happy to share. It was actually in one of my articles um, but there's a calculator out there and um, that where you can play around with the numbers of, okay, if this percentage of the population has the disease and if this is the sensitivity and specificity of the test and all of these tests are published, you know, on, on FDA.gov, all of the um, tests that have the emergency use authorization, um, you see that um, you see that if if the prevalence of the disease is very, very low, a test with uh, specificity that's around 97 or so percent, if it's positive, it could be that it's more likely that it's a false positive than it's a true positive. Right. Well, reliability is a whole other issue because like if we're, if we're doing research and I want to come up with like a re reliable measure for depression or something, it's, it's compared to what, right? It was like we say there's some reality that we already can measure. Like here, what are we even measuring against? Like, you know, like, how do we know if it's like, okay, it's 99% accurate in detecting antibodies? What, how, what are we comparing it to that's 100% accurate, so that we know this is 99 and not 29? Right, good question. So the way that they that, that these labs when, you know, I've looked at their monographs and, and how they collected data. So what they've done is some of them have samples from uh, blood samples from pre-COVID-19. So before this virus emerged, presumably there was no SARS-CoV-2 in the world at all, right? So that's how you get that control population that you know for sure from these previous, um, from these samples that have been collected previously. Uh, okay, these 
samples definitely should not have any antibodies to the virus because the virus didn't exist at that time. Mm-hmm. Now, people that are true positives um, in in these um, uh, in these studies of, of of these tests of the of the antibody tests are the people who at one point or another um, tested positive for the actual the PCR test, like for the actual um, virus. So they at one point or another had the virus in their body. Uh-huh. Um, so that's how they're able to measure, okay, we know for sure these people had it, and we know for sure uh, samples of these people did not have it. Mm-hmm. And so they're measuring it against. Uh, but I agree with you. I mean, it's still very tricky because, yes, we have the sensitivity and the specificity, but some of the tests, for example, even if we assume the prevalence of 5%, which is 10 times more than what is being reported right now, even if we assume that prevalence of 5%, there's some tests out there that if you get the test um, and you're positive, um, you may be um, 12% likely uh, that your positive was a false positive. Mm-hmm. So with percent, you know, if I get a test and I'm positive, but it could be that 12% risk that that it's actually a false test. I mean, 12% is 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 more than one in 10. It's it's not insignificant. Right. So, if, if, I, so if I go out there on the assumption that I'm safe and I'm not going to spread it, Mm-hmm. And and so once we get this test, and now te- and, and and you know all of us go out saying, well, I'm probably not spreading it. We've just increased the spread by a lot. Exactly, exactly. And that's the other assumption too that even if a test is a true positive, um, and again from looking at prior um, pathogens that we are able to mount immunity to, and we have these IgG antibodies to, we know that. Uh, generally, we should have immunity for a certain period of time. That immunity can vary. Um, but the degree to which we're immune is still unclear with respect to SARS-CoV-2. And um, whether or not we may be able to get it again and transmit it or maybe get it and be an asymptomatic carrier, we don't know. Mm-hmm. So even if it's a true positive, does it really change your management? At this time, we don't have enough data to say yes or no. Mm-hmm. I think for a lot of people, it's it, it's it gives them a peace of mind to know that okay, I've had it, I'm likely I'm likely okay for the time being. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we should just all of a sudden, you know, loosen all guidelines for those individuals and say, okay, well, you're fine. You don't have to wear a mask. You don't have to. I think it's just still premature to say that, you mm-hmm. know. And and again, we have to exercise caution. I think that when we're not sure. We need to err on the side of caution. Um, that being said, though, I know that some individuals, I've read that some individuals are being screened, you know, before they go back to work. But again, does that really mean that they get to wear no PPE? And no, I mean, I, they still clearly should be taking the same precautions, both, both for their own sake and for other people's sake, um, even if they're positive. Even if we think, yes, they likely have some degree of immunity, this is just so new. And, and I think that that's what we have to kind of, again, trying to, trying to be not fearful about it, which I know is difficult, but just trying to be reasonable. Like, this is, this is just the reality for the time being, and I have to take certain measures. Um, so, yes, you know, on the one hand, it gives some people peace of mind. On the other hand, though, um, research is being done on convalescent plasma, right, on people who have had the disease they mounted an immune response, and now their IgGs, their antibodies, are being used um, 
to study whether they can be helpful in the treatment of people who are hospitalized with COVID-19. So again, that's another reason why one may want to get it and see if they're a candidate Mm. um, for such studies. Um, But in terms of making any real big changes in, in how cautious we are in our use of masks, hand washing, um, socializing in big groups. I I don't think we're at the stage where we can say, yes, this gives you the free pass to do whatever you want. You know, we're not there. Got it. Right. So I think, I think I heard exuberant children in your background. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So (laughs) I was wondering, I was, I was, I wasn't going to ask, but like, how are you keeping them quiet and (laughs) occupied during this interview? But, uh, (laughs) So clearly they weren't quite occupied, right? So they were playing, but then I heard my husband too, and I was like, okay, I'll let him intervene. <laughs> um, but yeah, definitely. I mean, they're they're in school, but now it's uh, it's past their school day and and past their there's there's school Zoom meetings. Uh, so they were, uh, you know, playing as as a six and a half and an eight year old sometimes. Nice. <laughs> Very loudly, yes. <laughs> All right. Well, it's, it sounds like that's a cue to let you let you go and see what uh, what the damage is. Yes. Um, so, Boyana, Doctor Boyana, thank you so much for for show and for you know for people who want to follow you. Um, how like how can they get on your email list? How can they follow? Because as I've as I've said, your stuff comes in and it it informs me and it makes me feel better, even if you aren't sharing certainties. Right, right. Thank you for that. Um, uh, absolutely. So people can find me on drboyana.com, which is drboyana.com. Um, and if they're interested, they can grab a free meditation guide. Uh, and uh, I share a lot of resources on uh, coping with stress and anxiety, um, really, you know, practicing the health routines that are going to help us establish that foundation for the highest level of health that we can possibly mm-hmm. achieve. So, um, and then I, you know, do my best to share up-to-date information on, on what's current in, in health and medicine and wellness. Right. And your videos are also, you know, well-produced, like, for, like, like, like my standard is, do I have food on my face? And your standard is like, well-lit, <laughs> you know, like, you're, when you interview people or they you, know, you used to do interviews where you'd actually be in the same room sitting on the couch with someone. Um, right. So high production value uh, yes. and great content. So it's a it's a wonderful combo. Thank you. Thank you, Howard. All right. We'll say hi to everybody. And uh, for sure, I look forward to when this is all, you know, somehow behind us and we can get together in person again. Yes. Likewise. All right. Take care. Take- Bye. Bye. I hope you found that useful. If you'd like to check out the show notes, some of the references we talked about, you can find it at plantyourself.com slash 411 for information. And as I said, next week, I hope to be back with a topical podcast on various perspectives on, on race and protest and Again, the, you know, the, the intersectionality of it with the plant based movement, with the vegan movement, with social justice, with LGBTQ, with with every um, every continuum where there are people with more power than others, with more privilege than others who bear the brunt of the world differently. There is no there is no healing one without healing all. And. 
we often make the mistake in this community of demanding that all of them get equal air all the time. And this is a moment for seeding, um, seeding space, seeding the, the microphone and the megaphone to black people to hear their stories, to learn their history so that our outrage turns into something more than one day of Instagram posts and tweets and Facebook posts before we return to our recipes and, and all, all the rest. This is not a time to let this fade. This is a moment that can catalyze great change. And, and if you are listening and you want to argue that this is not a proper uh, content for a plant-based podcast, for a podcast based on health and human potential, then um, we will part ways because plant yourself means taking a stand for a healthy world. And a healthy world is one in which health is distributed, if not completely equally, then at least equitably. We are all cells in a body. And if we're going to say, well, I'll, you know, this, this skin cell on my left pinky is healthy, but the cells in my heart are not, then bad news for the pinky as well. That we are, we are literally all one. We've seen this with COVID-19. We've seen this, that the public health is a group effort, that anyone who is marginalized is putting us all at risk. We are all the weakest link. And, and being privileged enough to think that's not true doesn't make it untrue. It just means our pain is more psychological than obvious, that the ways in which we are unhealed and traumatized, um, we can get away with through through numbing with with substances, with food, with drink, with work, with sex, with whatever. And it's just going to take a little bit longer for the repercussions of injustice to knock on our door, but they will come. So, you know, part of me feels like the most selfish thing I can do for myself, for my kids, for my community, for all of the my affinity groups is to, is to raise my voice and my dollars. And right now, what I am feeling called to say is that black lives matter. And that is where our attention needs to go in, in our ongoing, never ending struggle to create a just world, a world that is worthy of our, our beautiful souls. The world in Charles Eisenstein's world words, the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible. Right now, the struggle, the protests are on the street. They are for dignity, for racial justice, for fairness for reparations, and most of all, for those of us who have been able to live blind to the problem for so long, to educate ourselves in what it means to be truly an ally, what it means to be as outraged at other people's mistreatment as at our, as, as at our own. So I look forward to hearing your respectful thoughts on this topic. And I'll be back um, maybe the end of this week, maybe uh, next week with whatever I can contribute to um, the, 
to justice so that we may have peace. All right. As always, be well, my friends. All right. Time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Mr. Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Lukanowski, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, hi Janet, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Benham, Gillisser, David Donahue, Blair Cyborg, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carl- Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lenneman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Ahmad, Nolly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, D.N. Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Cobble, Julian Rodkins, Breed O'Connell. Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Izatuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Dan Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazleton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justin Divich, Ashra Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Bacorny, Stephen Lehman, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Karts, Dean Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganshik, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidorowska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, and Michael Lushton for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends.